So it's funny that you're you're eating clementines because we're going to talk about the oral microbiome and dis- determining using the calculus from the teeth of dead people what they were eating and what their environment was like like way back when. So the I question think- the question will be because Kara eats clementines all the time. Would that be in her? Would there be traces in the microbiome of her dental calculus that someone could find years later? It would not help them geographically as clementines are not native to South Bend, Indiana. That is a good point. So you'd have to have a lot more cultural information. So today's interviews are are special for me because uh, so we have two people. Uh, one is Carolyn uh, Freewald, who is from uh, a, a, an associate professor of bioarchaeology from Old Miss, our uh, University of Mississippi, as they, they are technically known, but we all know them as Old Miss. And I'm excited because I have I don't have any connections at Ole Miss, and it's literally right down the road from us. It's it's also in the SEC. But our other guest is Jonathan Belenich, who is Dr. Belenich now, and he's at a postdoc at the University of Copenhagen, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he started off as uh, one of the undergraduates in my lab. He was a double major in anthropology and biology. He worked in the animal behavior lab, and he worked in my lab, and then he went on to do a master's in applied anthropology at Mississippi State with Molly Zuckerman. At the same time, he was doing a PhD in biology studying microbiomes. So Dr. Jonathan Belich is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Copenhagen in the blank lab. Kupelainen uh, group. In the, say that again? Kupelainen. Uh, Kupelainen. Say it with That's the accent Finnish. again. That was great. That's uh, a Finnish name. Yeah. It is, yes. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my advisor is a Finnish. We work on currently on diabetes and uh, uh, gene searching, and uh, I do a lot of wet lab stuff. So, Jonathan, the way we always start these shows off, uh, rather than start with where you are now, we always start off with how the sausage of the scientist is made, and then we move on to how the sausage of the science is made. So, okay. why don't you tell us about the uh, origins of Jonathan Belenich? And how you came to be in Copenhagen? Yeah, so it's it's been uh, it's been fun. It's I've got to bounce around a bit. So uh, I grew up in New York, and uh, from there, uh, you know, uh, grew up on Long Island and went to museums in the city all the time. And one of my favorite museums was the American Museum of Natural History, and everything from artifacts to dinosaur bones to very old dioramas with dust on them to like to the planetarium it was really cool it covered basically everything if you liked any aspect of of natural sciences you can go there and see it and also in the city were great uh, other museums like the tenement museum which showed you know life in new york and everything else and it was just super cool to learn about uh, our past and our very old past and current people and it was just so cool so when I went to college I went to the University of Alabama uh, from New York to deliberately go somewhere Sorry. I had roll tide that I had never been and I loved it it was great and uh, I double majored and I did uh, anthropology and biology because I couldn't make a decision and I worked with Dr. Lin which was super cool I worked in his uh, H-Berg lab. I took a lot of archaeological courses. I took osteology from Dr. Jacoby, and those are the classes that really stuck with me. So then I applied to do my master's and went to Mississippi State. So, uh, Hell State, I think that's theirs. And then uh, a year into my master's, I applied to do my PhD at the same time in biology and microbiology. 
And so finished my uh, master's doing some archaeology, uh, working on dental calculus, and then rolled that over into doing my PhD on a much larger sample of that. And then in the middle of my PhD, I applied uh, from the American Scandinavian Foundation to do a fellowship in Copenhagen uh, to work in Tom Gilbert and at the time I think it was called Evo Genomics in uh, the University of Copenhagen uh, to work in the Ancient DNA Laboratory. And then from there, I uh, spent my year there. I got a lot of work done, came back to the States, uh, taught, finished up my PhD, and then uh, applied for postdocs and came back to Copenhagen. So that's uh, how I bounced around. That is a great story. And um, I've been funded by the American Scandinavian Foundation. Like, you're the only other person I have met and talked really? to. Really? There aren't like a ton of anthropologists working no, in Scandinavia, so, <laughs> but that made me really happy. Uh, that's really cool. I didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I work with reindeer herders in Finland, but that's also why when you said the the PI of your lab, I'm like, that is a Finnish name. I know that. Yes. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, so you all shared a chapter. When is, uh, I'll give the title, called Methods in Bioarchaeology, What's New in Profiling an Individual Inside and Out? Uh, and when is that coming out? That I book? I think it's coming out this year. We got the final proofs for it in like December or January. Oh, nice. So I'm going to guess it comes out this year. That's I can't even imagine like <laughs> dealing with the final proofs of a book where you've looked at something so many times. You must be mm -hmm. just sick of it. But anyway, it was, it was fun. <laughs> um, this is a, a great chapter and a great time to be talking about it. One, because we are kind of doing a, a new series within the podcast of, about methods and measurement. But two, there's this whole kind of discussion and interrogating how we describe individuals and the labels we put on individuals, particularly within the archaeological record. And so you all mentioned right out of the gate that bioarchaeologists are shifting away from descriptive osteology and towards nuanced osteobiographies of people and populations. So what is an osteobiography? And then how do we actually go about making one for a population? Yeah. So uh, the osteobiography is more of a uh, biography using the skeletal uh, materials. And I think with the archaeological materials to do a more holistic uh, biography of an individual to look at uh, DNA to look at health, to look at disease, to use the associated artifacts around to try to create, uh, if not a life story, but more to put the uh, individual into context and to provide as much usable information as possible. To, to more shift away from a generalized, oh, this person was uh, high status, this person was low status, this person was healthy, this person was not, to give more nuanced information. And then that gives more of a personal face to archaeological sites into archaeological uh, research. There's kind of this holistic approach. Can you kind of define what mm -hmm. the holistic approach to an osteobiography is versus kind of what's been done in the past for, for folks that this might be really new to, not really knowing what archaeology did before when trying to describe people? Sure. Uh, before, uh, and originally I think it was just looking at the skeleton within context or even without and just saying... Uh, how old this person was, if they had any injuries, if they had any visible health problems on the skeleton, um, maybe by using associated grave goods, what they did, or um, potentially some sort of status. But that doesn't give a full uh, accounting of an individual's life. The skeleton doesn't record everything. 
the uh, visibility of the skeleton, a gross inspection will not show microscopic disease necessarily. It might show uh, trauma or some a broken bone, but it won't exactly show everything. So now with newer techniques and newer technologies, you can look at DNA sequencing of an individual. You can look at uh, sequencing of microbiome. You can look at sequencing of different aspects. You can then uh, also do uh, isotoping analysis and radiocarbon dating. So you can really pull in all of these different streams of analysis to get a much more holistic view of the individual. You could say, oh, this person based off of isotopes might not have moved very far uh, in their lifetime or moved from one area to another. And then you could potentially look at oral disease. You can potentially look at why there might have been uh, any oral pathologies. You can also look at if there was any malnutrition and uh, it gives a much more detailed overview that when viewed with all of the other artifacts and all of the other cultural knowledge, can you can really glean more information from that. And it provides, like I said before, a, a more personalized insight into uh, skeletal remains, into archaeological remains. So you went to Mississippi State. My, my understanding of what you, you, you went and did there is you learned how to do oral microbiome research and in this paper when you guys are talking about new methodologies to be employed in bioarchaeology you talk about methodologies that can tell you about the inside of the person and and methodologies that can tell you more about the outside of the person and you include ancient dna and um dental calculus in what how it can tell you about the outside of the individual and as i understand that the ancient dna is also coming from the dental calculus so can you unpack the dental calculus and what this gunk is that's being scraped off the teeth of dead people and how <laughs> much information you're you're able to elicit from this gunk it's amazing yeah uh it's super cool in the way that it's kind of not but so the dental calculus is just the calcification of the dental plaque. So when you go to the dentist uh, and you haven't brushed or flossed, which everyone does uh, the night before they go to the dentist, they try to chip off as much as they can. And then they go and they're like, oh yeah, obviously you've been brushing. So uh, it's just the calcification of the bacteria. So when you brush your teeth, bacteria in your mouth and your saliva just adhere to the teeth and to the oral surfaces. And over time, they form biofilm and then they calcify through uh, actions of the saliva and the salts. Uh, the bacteria die and then new bacteria colonize like that, uh, colonize onto it. So it becomes this like lump in your mouth. And if you uh, don't clean it, if you don't chip it off, if you don't floss, if you don't brush, it can build up and build up and build up. And if you're alive, it's kind of gross. But if you're dead, it can tell quite a lot of information about it. So this is why they scrape your teeth at the dentist? Yeah, uh, so it can also lead to uh, dental caries, so uh, uh, cavities, because when your bacteria, the bacteria there creates a slightly more acidic environment, and then they can bore into the, the acid, bores into the teeth, and then the bacteria get in there, and they create more acid, and then it bores into the teeth, and that's how you get cavities. Okay, so we're going, um, when we go to the dentist, and they do that scraping stuff, Yeah, it's to get that dental calculus off, right? Yes. So we're talking about... So before there were dentists, people just carried their calculus mm -hmm. forever, right? And that's what you're getting the opportunity to look at? Yeah, because there's okay, no cool. cleaning mechanism in the mouth for it besides uh, if you're eating something harsh or you're eating, I don't know, a rock or something, it could chip it off. Or if you deliberately brush your teeth or pick your teeth, then it could come off. But 
it's not going to just uh, come off by itself, and it can build up and build up, typically around uh, on the insides of the incisors and around the backs of the molars. You can see a ring, uh, and that's where the right at the gum line. That's where the dental calcule starts to form, and then over time, it can even take like over the entire tooth, which yeah. is interesting. Pleasant. Uh... Interesting to see, at least. So what can we actually learn from this gunk and the bacteria, the calcified bacteria? What sort of range of information can we learn from something that we don't actually want to have on our teeth? So from this, you can do a couple of things. One cool way is to uh, dissolve the dental calculus, is to look for phytoliths, so remains of the insides of the plant cells. So you can technically, uh, actually, you can look at the diet in that way. You can see what's been trapped in there because the matrix when it's forming is quite sticky. And so the uh, phytolites get stuck in there, and uh, you can recover them that way. Uh, what I did is you look at the bacteria themselves. So you uh, extract the DNA, you get the DNA out, and then you look to see what bacteria were in the individual's mouth when those samples were formed. Level of, like, granularity. Like, can you get down to, like, a species-level type plant or a genus? How... how how much can we zoom in on somebody's diet? So with the phytoliths, uh, I, I don't remember as much uh, because you, you can get down to genus level depending on where uh, the samples come from because the phytoliths can either be quite specific or very um, similar to a lot of other ones. That's not my specialty. I, I haven't done that. I've just read a lot of cool papers on it. Uh, looking at bacteria, you can get down to the species level. The DNA is kind of degraded and by that very degraded, but with enough programs and tools, you can get down to uh, identify um, uh, pathogens, and you can identify uh, normal oral microbiota and oral flora. So it just, uh, it depends on what you're looking at. So we were joking at the beginning of this, um, we were we were saying, uh, <laughs> Carol with computer issues, it's trying to get in. We were saying that, uh, Kara was eating clementines, and maybe Jonathan would be able to tell where the clementines were from or something about her. What, what could you tell from Kara's dental calculus, in other words, after having just eaten clementines in the modern era? Just as a uh, hypothetical situation. That's a good question. Uh, so from, from the clementines themselves, I don't know exactly, but... It would have it has a lot of sugar which could feed uh, oral pathogens so a lot of the pathogens uh, typically feed on more sugar so the more sugars there the more they grow the more they become present into into the uh, oral microbiome and the more likely they would be present in the preserved oral microbiome uh, a lot of the more modern uh, samples uh, over time basically they show that the more modern they get the more modernized diet is the more pathogens that are there because they feed on the sugars and they are the causes of caries because they, they use the sugar, they create acid, acid etches into the teeth, and then all of a sudden we have little rivets and uh, little tiny cavities that we go to the dentist for. So basically you just made me feel incredibly bad about eating that clementine, technically two clementines. <laughs> oh, wow, okay, then that yeah, one one would have been fine. One two was really just over the top. <laughs> So then I had you zoom in, like, you know, what sort of genus and species level. Let's now zoom out. You you have your dental calculus and you found X, Y, and Z bacteria and phytoliths and everything else. How do you then take the goop and build to a person and a population? So 
with all the phytoliths and with everything else, you can tend to look at uh, the diet. You can then look at the disease. So if an individual has, looking at the skeletal remains, if they have gingivitis and you find specific species of bacteria, then you can say, oh, look, this is probably what caused this. Or if they have particularly aggressive gingivitis, there's a group of bacteria that's called the red complex that basically when they're found together, they produce very aggressive gingivitis, periodontitis, that sort of eats away at the gum line and causes tooth loss and is not exactly pleasant to have. But if you find that together in, combi in combination with the uh, skeletal evidence, uh, you have a good case to say like, yep, this pretty much caused that. Um, getting down into other bacteria, you could see if the person had no pathogenic bacteria, and they might have had a healthy oral microbiome, and you could be that could be correlated with, oh, look, this individual lived to be slightly older and had no caries, no cavities, no gingivitis, no periodontitis, looked in general healthy. You can then look at the rest of the skeleton and get a good sense of this individual was healthy up until they died. This individual uh, might have had a terrible diet, but in general was healthy. Um, there's a lot that can be done, but especially combining everything together, uh, you get the the full holistic view of the individual and this individual ate one too many clementines is, yes. is the point we're getting to that's okay. that's the defining <laughs> that's a definitive factor really on publication right there mm -hmm. oh was that easy um we're gonna definitely have to get carolyn back on uh to talk yeah. about her her side of this but but just to just to touch on it a little bit so that folks know uh, as I said, you guys pointed to two areas for methodological innovation in bioarchaeology. So one of those is looking at oral microbiome and ancient DNA to, to paint the portrait of what is going on outside. What innovations, at least without having without the granularity that Carolyn could give us, what innovations in your article do you talk about that can tell us more about the inside? So uh, I know Carolyn and Astor were working on uh, isotope values. They were looking at stable carbon and they were looking at nitrogen values and they were looking at uh, samples from the teeth to show potentially population movement and to show uh, types of food uh, and types of plants eaten with that. I, and there were some also so far isotope isotopic values and I am I am very much not the expert on that. I find it super cool and then beyond me. Yeah, I mean I I think <laughs> I love this paper uh, as because I I got the let's say for me for for our students and the unfortunate um, opportunity uh, for me uh, was mm -hmm. unfortunate for the students to be the advisor for two bioarchaeologists because <laughs> Uh, you know Keith Jacoby. He retired, yeah. and and I was the only person who was in a position to be able to advise them. And I am methodologically limited in terms of advising a bioarchaeology student. So this paper is extraordinarily useful. So, what are you doing next? What is on Jonathan's plate for other research? So uh, on my plate right now is to publish all this stuff up. So that is something that I need to do and have not dragged my feet on, but have delayed in the grand tradition of academia of I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, oh god, it's being late, oh god, I need to work on it, let's get it done out now. So I'm working on my manuscripts for my PhD, I'm also working on my, uh, my research here, which is similar in a way, but also uh, kind of not. So it's, it's dealing with health 
and bioinformatics and uh, lab work, but I work on uh, live people, individuals that were alive when the data was gathered. Tell us about it. Yeah, like what are the questions you're asking? Sure. So uh, we're, I work in the Kiplan group at the Nova Nordisk Foundation Center for Basic Metabolic Research, which is a long acronym when I have to put it on a poster. And we look at the connection between adipose and diabetes. So adipose and fasting insulin and uh, the differences in body mass, body mass index and weight distribution because fat isn't necessarily the same wherever it is. If it's visceral fat versus um, fat in the limbs or fat in the liver, those are very different areas for fat to be. So I'm looking from uh, GWAS, so a, a genome-wide association study. We found some uh, SNPs that were associated with uh, genes that had the traits we wanted, so individuals who were high in uh, body mass index but were normal or even low on insulin resistance, so they were completely fine. And then we were looking at uh, why and potentially which uh, SNPs made them that way. So I'm working in the lab now with uh, cells to test uh, gene knockdowns and using CRISPR to increase the amount of genes, uh, the amount of uh, protein present and see how that affects the cells and see how it affects the dipogenesis, the generation of lipids and fat, and to see eventually when that will affect the distribution of fat in an individual and how that plays a role into uh, insulin resistance. It's like you saw me gesticulating wildly <laughs> and Chris pointed at me. So I had a paper come out. I don't know. I feel like it was a month ago, but it could nice. like feels like a, a 30 years ago at this point. Uh, so the reindeer herders that I work with, they're on average, larger folks with high body mass indices and, and a high degree of body adiposity, but their mm -hmm. blood biomarkers are pretty darn good and not what you would expect for, for people who tend to towards obesity. And there's a, a growing body of literature, not only about the problems with BMI as a diagnostic yeah. tool, but also the possibility of metabolically healthy obese phenotypes being a real thing. And it looks like you're potentially looking into metabolically healthy obese genotypes that, mm -hmm. that might indicate why certain individuals who could carry additional body fat could have relatively normal metabolisms. Uh, and yeah, I, I've gotten pushback even from a collaborator of mine in Finland, like, no, it doesn't exist. There's, there's no such thing. But like, there is data showing that this this is a thing and we need yeah. to understand it. So that's really exciting work. How far along are you with it? So I'm in the middle of a three-year postdoc. And so I'm well into my wet lab phase. So we're working on uh, a lot of lab stuff. So it's basically testing, testing, testing. We're sending stuff off for sequencing and for analysis. And um, we've identified uh, quite a few SNPs and quite a few genes that were significant. And mm -hmm. then... Um, levels and levels of filtering to get to the ones that I'm working with. And so I'm working with uh, six to eight genes, and these are uh, being tested in, in cells in the lab. So uh, we'll start up with CRISPR experiments soon to, mm -hmm. to over-amplify and to over-express, uh, basically in order to look at how the cells are affected. And then we're doing microscopy and uh, quite a lot of stuff from there. So we're not working, we're going backwards from... Uh, bioinformatics to wet lab and then back to bioinformatics mm -hmm. so it's sort of a, a loop and it's lab driving the bioinformatics driving the wet lab 
And when I was hired on, um, my advisor specifically wanted someone who had done bioinformatics work and was very comfortable in the wet lab. So basically, you could understand what was happening you know, on mm-hmm. the computer side, work with the data a little bit, and then take it into the lab and then generate new data to continue on with and then to spread it out to other projects. Very cool. So my wet lab stuff doesn't work with individuals, but it works with, with the fat cells. And then we're going to uh, go from there. Uh, it's it's really it's very fun. So, are these just lab cell lines, or are you working with specimens from a population that has been collected at some point? So these are immortalized cell lines that we're okay. working with. So uh, immortalized uh, mesenchymal cells that are differentiated into adipose. So you get to see them grow from these tiny little cells to much bigger fat cells, and they get very shiny in the microscope. Okay, cool. and, uh, it is very cool. Look we into should, brown fat cells for me, please. So look into some brown oh, yeah. adipose tissue cells. <laughs> Give so me I, all the information. Yeah. My labs, uh, my office is on the eighth floor. Uh, I think the brown adipose labs are basically sixth and seventh floor. And then we all share a lab on the seventh floor. So it's basically, yeah, I, there are guys working on it. It just depends on the cocktails you give it and the differentiation uh, protocols. It sounds simple, but it's not. There's a lot of like little bits to it, but it's... It's doable, and a lot of guys uh, work on it, so we can definitely chat after this. No, no, we should because I I mean, I I obviously work on the macro scale where you are on the micro scale, but measured brown fat with the the reindeer herders as well and and saw significant activation. Yeah. I need to look into your paper then because I don't... That paper is actually under revision. I just got the email this morning. Uh, So, (laughs) yeah, that paper will be revised and should come out later this year in uh, the Journal of Physiological Anthropology. Cool. Congrats. Uh, Sorry, yeah, we've gone into the weeds, with... Chris. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the what how the sausage is made, is it not? Yes, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Anyway, Jonathan, you had a question. I'm sorry. Oh no, 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 because it's the because I work with mostly the white adipose, but uh, the brown adipose is sort of is really interesting on its own. And then all of my, all of my papers saved on my computer do like that. And then I read something else. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Why aren't I doing that? Oh, it's brown adipose. Okay, something else after this to add to the list of things to look into. But that's one of the interesting things that we're finding with brown fat. Well, one, it's not consistent from population to population. So like no. the reindeer herders for me have behaved differently than Steph Levy's work in Siberia and my grad students' work yeah. in Albany, New York, and Samoa. But another interesting part with, you know, diabetes and glucose is some populations show that the brown fat preferentially utilizes glucose, which could really help any sort of pre-diabetic tendencies, whereas other populations seem to really like fatty acids rather than glucose for brown fat. And so there's lots of interesting variation to... It's really hard to get the complete picture because of these interacting things, like the focus on white adipose versus brown adipose. They're likely interacting and changing the metabolic profile among individuals. Oh, yeah. There's uh, a lot of cool work being done about it in a lot of labs at our center here at CBMR. I think Zach Hines' group and there's a few others that are working on uh, the expression because it's it's very different from uh, from the white adipose. The, yeah, it's closer the to muscle tur- in so yeah. many ways, developmentally at least. It's it's presents differently around the body. It, it is located in different areas. It, it doesn't look the same. It's yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's it's pretty cool. Whenever there's a lecture on, I'm like, that's so cool. <laughs> then, I, then I talk to people like, your stuff is so cool, and then we're just like, this stuff is so cool. So it's great. We all we all talk about fat like all the time. So it's, uh, 
So our last question is a two-parter. Um, yeah. so, so when you are not mixing cocktails for Petri dish gene things, he <laughs> said he was making cocktails. So I, 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 I do, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to transition, use that as my transition. <laughs> what do you, one, what do you do for fun? And two, when you finish your postdoc, what's next for you? So what do I do for fun? So, uh, well, I currently live in Copenhagen, so I do a lot of biking around, uh, no matter the weather. So wind, biking, rain, biking, sunny days, the three of them we get in the summer, uh, biking, which is quite nice. Go to the beach on those days, uh, swim a lot. I'd love to pick fencing up again, but I also do a lot of- Are you gloating because your uh, co-author was biking and had an accident and can't join us today? Is that is that why you kept saying <laughs> oh my that? Oh God, I forgot about that. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, Carolyn. Um, but yes, I I will wear a helmet now in, in honor of her. Uh, but she's she's fine. I think she just can't connect, so everything everything is good. <laughs> but uh, we also do a lot of tweet events here. So there's a lot there's a couple groups of people that dress up in in full vintage clothing. And so in September we have uh, a tweed ride. So it's like a thirty kilometer bike ride through the city, ringing bells. Uh, I love and, this. Uh, this is the most you thing I've ever heard. It's, it's really great. <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan and I had a lot in common, and fashion was one of them. So yeah, yeah. and uh, I think in, in April or May, there's a vintage steam train that goes up to Helsingør, which has the uh, so it's a steam train that goes up, and then there's usually a party in Kronborg uh, Castle, which is the castle from Hamlet. So that's pretty fun. Um, and there's a lot of good like music shows, punk shows, and stuff here. So it's uh, it's pretty good. <laughs> Pretty good, pretty just good. just pretty good, you know. Uh, and then, yeah, what's the plan post postdoc? So post postdoc, I have no idea. It's kind of just <laughs> like being uh, an undergrad again, and then a PhD student. It was like my PhD. I was mostly sort of like I know postdoc. I kind of know what I want to do. Right now, um, I'd like to continue. If, if this work isn't done, I'd like to continue up on that, and then maybe go back into anthropology, biological anthropology, and work more with. Uh, shift not just shifting from the uh, individual and microbiology level but like dealing more with populations and doing maybe some more epidemiology um i have no idea but i hope it's going to be fun it's really really the important thing well i need you to do me a favor i'm gonna i'm gonna bring my two podcasts together through jonathan okay. jonathan you're in copenhagen yeah. i need you to go find maya sealuk who is also in copenhagen introduce yourself to her say hello i cannot do that she is a friend of mine from my other my other podcast, Inking of Immunity. She okay. is an, an, um, a Greenlandic Inuit tattoo artist. She lives in Copenhagen. And we are nice. going to collaborate to put together a conference in Copenhagen someday. So stay there long enough yeah, to join us. Absolutely. Go meet her uh, on my behalf, introduce yourself, and then I'll give you instructions from there. You all need to find okay. a way to loop me into this trip. Somehow, well, some way. You can, come, you can come and then we'll work on talk about diabetes That's right. and uh, and fat. And then we can all just go to the conferences together. So that'll be good. And then, you know. Ride the train. Right? Ride, the, Ride train the train in Tweed. In Tweed. In tweed. Absolutely. <laughs> I do not have Tweed. I need to up well, my Tweed know. game. Uh, we, we have, there's enough people here. We can find you some. There's a lot of vintage stores <laughs> here, too. We could, we could get you some good outfits. There nice. Love this. Uh, Jonathan, it's been an absolute delight having you on the show. And, like, unexpectedly, like, oh, shit, our stuff, like, totally overlaps and we had no idea. Uh, so that was a fun thing for me. So thank you for sharing. That's why we do yeah, the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> Jonathan, take care of yourself, and yeah, how do people find out about your stuff? Uh, so I'm currently writing up the papers and dealing with uh, that, so hopefully they'll be coming out soon. 
And then uh, otherwise people can just email me. My, my University of Alabama email is still active and I use that. <laughs> Wow. but I also have uh, my KU email which I can send to you guys so my, my University of Copenhagen email is my professional email we'll have Cool. that in the show notes that'd be great Awesome, Jonathan. Thank you so much.